You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. <laughs> It's Tuesday, July 28, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington in New York, joined shortly by Max Weathy. But first, Nick Correa with the day's stories. Thanks, Ash. The Republicans' opening bid for a new stimulus bill came through Monday evening. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell announced the Health, Economic Assistance, Liability Protection and Schools, or HEALS Act, amounting to about $1 trillion. The bill the Democrats have in the Senate as their opening bid was passed through the House of Representatives back in May, and it amounts to roughly $3 trillion. However, the negotiations ahead will be strenuous. Considering the gap in the amount of funding proposed by the two parties, the vehement policy differences between the two bills, Republican intraparty conflicts, and the time crunch introduced from programs such as enhanced unemployment benefits having effectively ended, Passing a new bill within the next few days prior to congressional recess may seem nigh to impossible. Democrats have heavily criticized the GOP for how long it took to propose their bill, as well as how their bill provides too little aid. We've waited months, months, for the Republican COVID relief bill. And it turns out we won't even get a bill, and Republicans probably won't support it. Worse still, Based on reports and Leader McConnell's speech just now, the Republican legislative response to COVID-19 is totally inadequate. The Republican proposal will ignore not one or two or three, but scores of major crises in America right now. To quickly review the Democratic bid, House Democrats had passed the Health and Economic Recovery Omnibus Emergency Solutions, or HEROES Act, mid-May. It includes stimulus check payments sent to Americans that are within similar parameters set within the CARES Act. It also extends the enhanced unemployment benefits of an additional $600 per week through January 2021. The HEROES Act also extends the suspension of student loan payments through September 2021. No interest accrual and up to $10,000 of student loan forgiveness for some federal and private loan holders. It also provides funding for rental and mortgage assistance hazard pay for essential workers, and direct aid for states and localities. Part of the reason the HEALS Act has been introduced so late is that the Republicans have been experiencing intra-party conflicts concerning the stimulus package. In recent days, it's becoming more apparent how divided Republicans are over the amount of stimulus the U.S. economy and its citizens need. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina said over the weekend that half of the GOP would not be supporting the Republican bill making the difficult negotiations ahead that much more intense. With less than 100 days to go for the 2020 elections, many Republican senators are under the gun to come up with a strong and decisive response to the pandemic. In their efforts to do so, they've somewhat distanced themselves from President Trump. For example, he has expressly stated that he wanted to see a payroll tax cut, which Republicans have dropped. They've also rejected President Trump's call to omit funding for coronavirus testing and to defund schools should they fail to resume in-person classes. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin have led the charge to supply an additional $1 trillion to the chagrin of a small but vocal faction of fiscal hawks, most notably Ted Cruz. 
And yet even Tom Cotton has voiced concerns that failing to deliver the necessary aid will damage the party's electoral chances in November. Because of this intra-party division, Senator Mitch McConnell will have to rely more on the Democratic vote to see a bill through, which will weaken the Republicans' position in these negotiations and could have a real impact on the election outcomes later this year. With that, I'll send it back over to Ash. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Thanks, Nick. Max, let's jump right in. What are we looking at today in markets? Well, it started off pretty sleepy today. Uh, markets were down, you know, a little bit to start. Didn't really do anything till around three o'clock, and sometimes that happens where all the the real action happens uh, either at the beginning of the day or the end of the day. And S and P closed down, Nasdaq down, European markets down. Um, bonds were up. Gold kept its its head above water today as well. Um, I think you especially and and a lot of religion subscribers have been following crypto markets. Uh, Bitcoin had a big run yesterday, but uh, I know a lot of focus has been placed on Bitcoin, but Ethereum, uh, actually, if, I think if you go to like the one month um, chart of both of them, Bitcoin's up like 20% on the month. Ethereum, though, up 40%. I would love to get your take on why you think that is. I know that it's not really your thing when it comes to the crypto markets trying to uh, talk about price movements, but I, I have to ask, why do yeah. you think that? Lots to say there. Let's hit that later because we've got a lot to talk about up front. Uh, what were your thoughts, by the way, on Nick's intro? On Nick's intro? Well, I think he pretty much touched on uh, one of the most important things that's that's coming out in the in the coming you know weeks, months. We'll see how long it takes for this to all wrap itself up. Um, I think that the the stimulus plan that came out from the Republicans, although there is like a huge dearth between what the Democrats got through, um, I think the political pressure to get something through, especially with this being such a big election year, is so huge. Um, I would be hard pressed to believe that they don't get something through before the election, and and they've even said they want it. They want to get checks out in August. So um, there's a lot of of infighting going on within the Republicans as far as, you know, the political side of things. But uh, I'm not as up to date on exactly what the provisions are of the different stimulus that's coming out, because we also got stuff from the Fed with them extending some of their liquidity provisions out until the end of the year. I know that you, um, as well as Nick, spent a lot of time today digging through that stuff. Can you go a little bit deeper into exactly what we're expecting from some of the stimulus? Well, yeah, you know, that's that's exactly right, Max. And and what I was thinking about today, we actually had a conversation around nine o'clock this morning where we were talking about uh, precisely this issue. And it got me thinking that it's probably worthwhile as we get into this, because sometimes it's easy to get lost in the weeds, uh, especially with um, with the the, the congressional um debating process as they as they go back and forth on these bills to get lost about what the big picture is. And so here's here's the basic overview. Like first, let's just set the stage, right? So US GDP had already slowed before the outset of COVID. Uh, from Q2 to Q4 uh, of 2019, US GDP was already down to 2% uh, QOQ SAAR, so on a quarter over quarter basis, seasonally adjusted annualized rate, 2%, right? The, the US officially entered into recession in February 
of 2020, February of 2020. So really pre-COVID here in the US. And, and what's happened now is obviously there's been a massive stimulus response. The stimulus response obviously falls into two categories, the monetary response from the Fed, the central bank, uh, and fiscal stimulus from Congress. Now, just a quick overview on the Fed. The Fed basically has three broad categories of policy actions that they can take. They can cut rates, they can buy assets, and they can change regulation. That's basically it. Those are basically the three broad policy buckets that the Fed has at their fingertips to execute policy. In this case, I guess not surprisingly, they did all three. Okay. So on the rate side, they cut rates a lot. They cut the Fed funds target rate from 1.5 to 1.75% range to zero to 25 basis points. Now that is a big increment cut. They'd been, they'd been raising at a quarter of a point at a time and they cut obviously significantly more than that. Uh, they cut 1.5%. 150 basis points. They cut the discount rate from 1.5% to 0.25%, 25 basis points. Again, 125 basis point cut, another big cut. They made some regulatory changes. They they changed some of the technical plumbing for reserve requirements, and they and they removed some restrictions uh, on Wells Fargo that they had faced uh, after the uh, the scandal involving creating sort of dummy accounts, as we all know. But the real action here, Max, uh, takes place, the fireworks takes place uh, on the asset purchase side. Here, the Fed goes absolutely gangbusters. They come in guns blazing, quantitative easing, credit easing. They're buying treasuries. They're buying MBS. It's open-ended, right? They intervene in the repo market. Bid, bid, bid. 1.5 trillion in repo ops, then 2.0 trillion. This is injecting gobs of liquidity into the US banking system. They spin up a series of SPVs. Uh, those are the special purpose vehicles. There's a whole alphabet soup that we've already discussed on past episodes of Real Vision Daily Briefing. There's the PDCF, the Primary Dealer Credit Facility, the M. MLF, a liquidity facility for, uh, for, for money market funds. There's the AMLF, the asset-backed commercial paper market funding facility. They're just It just goes on and on. They intervene in corporate credit markets. They intervene in the primary market. They intervene in the secondary market. And then, of course, there's the Paycheck Protection Program lending facility, the PPP. This is the Paycheck P Protection Program that we've talked about. There's about $600 billion now in Main Street lending programs, uh, and it's up to $10 million per company. And under some circumstances, it can be 100% forgivable. So that is the big picture here uh, with the Fed side of the equation. Now let's move on and talk a little bit about the fiscal side, because this is where the congressional debate begins. So on the fiscal side, Congress passed three packages uh, and one supplemental totaling $2.8 trillion in spending. The first two are relatively modest by congressional terms, about $12 billion uh, between them. And then the CARES Act, which is phase three, is $2.3 trillion dollars. And this did a series of, uh, of, of, of stimulus actions in the US economy, $1,200 to every adult uh, and $500 per child, mortgage forbearance, uh, and the expansion of unemployment benefits, extending to the gig economy to furloughed workers who wouldn't otherwise be eligible, and ultimately the $600 a week in additional supplementary unemployment insurance that is currently being 
debated. You know, to get uh, back to what Nick was talking about today, you know, we find ourselves in, in, in relatively unusual territory here. We have the heels versus the heroes. Those are the names of the two packages uh, that uh, that the Democrats and Republicans uh, are, are, uh, are, are debating right now. Heroes being the Democrat side and the heels being the Republican side. I think we know who won the battle for naming there. Um, but what's interesting about this, Max, is something that you actually alluded to is there's intense rivalry right now within the GOP. This is extremely unusual. Uh, the GOP congressional caucuses are generally much better organized. They generally uh, are much more focused and they can they can generally get things done uh, more easily than the fractious Democratic Party, which has historically, at least the last 30 years, been riven into multiple factions. But there are two clear factions that seem to be developing here on the GOP side. The pragmatists uh, who want to sp spend more uh, and the hawks, uh, who are fiscal fiscal hawks who are averse to the spending. The opposition to the spending is led by Ted Cruz. Now, I'm curious to hear about what your thoughts are on this. To to me, you know, th there's there's a pragmatic element here that 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 if you want to get reelected, uh, you can't have the economy fall off a cliff face. Now, this isn't an, econo an economic argument, and I'm not making a normative uh, view of what uh, one party should or shouldn't do uh, from a, a perspective of what's best for the economy. But it seems pretty clear uh, that it's going to be really difficult to, to decrease the amount of stimulus that people are receiving and win re-election. The Dems already control the House. Uh, the Senate now is 53-47 in the Republican favor, and they could lose that. And there are Numerous stories. I don't follow the political side as closely as I do the economic and uh, and uh, financial side, obviously. But you keep reading these stories that the Republican leadership is bracing for losing the White House uh, in, in in November, and and you have to wonder about whether or not they really want to be the party to blame for cutting those unemployment benefits supplements back from six hundred to two hundred dollars uh, per week, as the plan now calls for. What are your thoughts on that? I don't think it's as much to do with 600 versus 200. It's nothing versus something. Um, and that's what I really think is going to happen. I think there will be something, uh, whether it's 200, whether it's 600. I don't know, because the same thing goes for the Democrats. They see this as an opportunity for the proverbial blue wave. And if they can't get something across uh, the, the finish line, they have the same sort of issues with, with trying to be able to take the Senate. I think it is really all about Mitch McConnell's majority uh, that he has in the Senate. and. Some commentary has come out to say that you know that's really what it's all about. And, and the second that that majority seems like it might be in danger because of because of this stimulus plan, um, that that's when you're really going to see action. Um, so I think that I just I just can't imagine them not getting something through on both ends with with the Democrats saying it's not enough. Um, so we're not going to sign it because you know, they've they got this through in May. They got their their plan through in May. They have at, at the very front end been pushing how important it is to get this through now. It's not something that that is supposed to be. It's not like Social Security that's going to be in place for 100 years. And so you have to get it right the first time because it's going through. Like, this is something the whole reason that we have it is because we need it now supposedly. And so the idea that uh, you can sit on your ideological horse and, and not get something through, I, I just don't buy it on, yeah. on both ends. And and actually, there was something that came out that said about 50% of the GOP is not going to vote for a phase four no matter what. 
Now, it's all about the Senate, which the interesting thing about the Senate is that there's six-year terms. So there's a breakdown between people who are up for election now and there are people who are up for election uh, in, in a few years. And I would be really interested to see how the voting falls along those lines. Yeah, that, that's extremely well said, Max. I, I'm curious, you know, I tend to agree with you, the notion that uh, that something is going to get done here. But if something does get done, and let's say there's a the difference gets split between the 600 and the 200, let's say they land on 300 in a negotiated compromise, aren't Democrats going to relentlessly run ads saying that Republicans cut back by 50%, they cut in half the benefit, supplemental benefit that you were receiving, and they're the bad guys here? I mean, how, how do the optics of that play out? in an election year where people feel real pain. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Well, I think especially considering some of the other things that have gone in to the bill, yeah, that that's a that's a huge risk for them. Uh, the L in heels is liability protection for businesses that are opening in the face of the crisis. So to get the economy back to running, uh, they want to protect those businesses who are rightfully worried about uh, lawsuits from their employees, from their customers for opening too soon and exposing them to the virus. Uh, and the Democrats, I'm sure, would say, well, we wouldn't have to do that if we could just keep people safe, give them the money they need to get things to, to put food on the table. Then you wouldn't have to worry about getting the economy running when it's potentially too risky. So yeah. I mean, that's that's a big ideological line that I think is the clear line in the sand and just looking at the L in heels as the main difference between what the Democrats think is important and what the Republicans think is important. Yeah, you know, it's it's really interesting in terms of the L in heels. Like, it, th there's an issue, and I'm and I'm just playing devil's advocate here. I'm thinking through this from a political perspective and not necessarily from a financial or economic perspective. But the question comes, you know, if you're right on substance but you're wrong on optics, and you just get hammered in your state with the opposition party running ads that say he's the Max Weefy is the Senator Weefy is the bad guy who decided to cut you back. You're 1200 bucks a month short uh, for because of what Senator Weefy voted for. He keeps talking about the Ellen heels, but that's the difference between, you know, your rent or your mortgage payment. I'm just saying this is something that could really be a difficult path for them to walk, for the Republicans to walk from a political perspective. Well, I would just say on the flip side, if we're if we're playing political, uh, you know, chess here, the idea that the Republicans could run the ads that would say you didn't get anything. And it's because the Democrats weren't willing to to meet us in the middle. Um, right. And the Republicans, like, I don't think there are many red senators from from uh, from blue states that are, you know, I just think that the, the senators that are in in the red states are the ones that are going to to be safe in this sort of thing if they get something through. It's, I think it's really just about getting something through. Yeah. Uh, but I think really thinking, bring it back to the market and, and less about what's going to happen, because I don't think either of us have this political crystal ball. Um, it, it comes down to consumer confidence. And, and what we saw with the first stimulus is that incomes were replaced and more than replaced in a lot of circumstances. And so this could be another thing that gives uh, puts a bid back up under the market. We saw consumer confidence um, miss after declining from the previous month. And I yeah. think that's directly related to worries surrounding this sort of thing. That $600, it's gone already. It's off. So it's not, they've already passed 
the line where they can debate and haggle and everybody is still fine. That's passed. So we're in we're in go mode. Um, so I, I think that this is going to move incredibly fast. But if it doesn't, I mean, that's your answer. Like if this doesn't yeah. happen quickly, you've, you've got your answer on this. Yeah. You know, and again, just to reiterate, we've been talking about this in the domain of politics and the term domain of perception and not in the domain of substance. And if this does, uh, in fact, fail, it's a it's a major sort of, I would think, a pox on both of your houses. I, f- I imagine that uh, they're going to be pointing fingers at each other and it's just going to amp up the rhetoric uh, and increase the pain, none of which uh, are good for the for the for the for, for consumer confidence or for the broader economy. Yeah. And and we're already seeing I wouldn't call it a faltering market, but the uh, the V-shaped bounce that we saw, um, which was really just you know a bounce from like we had fallen so far, there had to be some sort of bounce. Um, but we're getting to the point now where it's about the substance of the recovery. And is this is this a total recovery? Is it a partial recovery? How much momentum are we going to have when we come out the other side of this? So I think we're starting to get into that period where markets are going to be uh, especially reactive to this sort of thing. Um, we saw today, as we talked about earlier, you know, kind of choppy during during the morning and afternoon, and, and yeah, a moderate sell off at close. But you know, not the same sort of steam that we saw in the past few months, um, except for those uh, those assets like gold and and Bitcoin and Ethereum that are. You know, traditionally safety assets. We haven't had the the rapid selling uh, that we had back in March that caused it to be a, a total risk off sell off. But those sorts of things are are holding their head up, and so I, I think to me that points to to uncertainty in the market. We're seeing it across just about every single asset. Yeah, more on uh, digital assets in a second, but just to call back to the consumer confidence numbers uh, that you mentioned that came out at 10 a.m. this morning. I think this is an important point. The actual number today, 92.6 off a consensus of 95.7, so obviously below consensus. But as you pointed out, Max, I think the bigger drop here uh, is from prior revised of 98.3. That's a pretty significant contraction. That's a, a real material decline in the perception of consumer confidence. Yeah, it, it really is. And you know, I know I know personally, I'm kind of like right in that sweet spot. Like I, I'm very fortunate to have a job right now, but I have expenses and I'm in that period of time and in that income range where every dollar sort of counts. Um, and I know personally what what $1,200 would do for me, uh, the $1,200, which ironically is the thing that there is no debate about. So in both bills, the, uh, the, the $1,200 check is right in there. Um, it is the, it is the, uh, the, the unemployment insurance is the big debate. And we've spent the whole time talking about unemployment insurance and not really about, uh, loans to small businesses or the PPP, which is, I think, telling to me, cause you could argue that, that on a, you know, total dollars basis, that that is going to be just as big in terms of whatever gets passed, but it's the consumer. It is the the everyday American that is grabbing the headlines and the focus of the politicians. And I think uh, it, it's it's very clear why. Well, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's probably because those uh, those programs are far safer. You get 10 uh, or 12 rather men and women who have uh, PhDs in economics into a room. They close the door. They hash something out between them and uh, then they make an announcement. It's not the vaudeville show we've got going on uh, on the other side of Pennsylvania Avenue in Congress, right? I mean, look, if there's anything in America right now 
that progressive uh, Democrats and conservative Republicans agree on. It's the dysfunction of Congress. It is the one unifying universal principle that's generally true in American politics uh, and is now true even more so. So all of those programs that are coming out of the Fed, the trillions of dollars in stimulus, uh, are relatively simple in terms of their ability to get approved because you just you just have to get 12 people together uh, to, to agree on it. There's not a political process and it happens behind closed doors. Now, you could argue about what that means for long-term deficits and debt uh, and what the impact is going to be in the economy. I'm generally much more sympathetic uh, to uh, central bankers, uh, I think, than, uh, than, than some people who are sort of skeptics on that side. I'm skeptical, I guess. I'm skeptical about the long-term impact, but I just feel that, that you have like 12 people who are sitting in a room going, if we don't get this done, God knows what Congress is going to do. We need to step up and pull the trigger and just do something because we know for certain, and I think this is their driver, right, at a very simple, at a very simplistic level. We know for certain at the Fed, at the FOMC, that if we do nothing, things are going to get horrible and horrible in a hurry. Now, that is in no way to diminish the potential long-term consequences of effectively unlimited federal uh, stimulus coming out of the Fed. Uh, but I think that's what they think when they look at these markets and when they look at this economy. Yeah, and, and I'm like you. I try not to think about the uh, ethical questions about what my job is to determine if and what the potential effects are going to be for markets. Um, so you know, I'm not going to comment on, on whether I think it is a good idea or not. Um, but yeah, I, I would have to agree. But you know, just to to try and, and bring it back to markets as I like to do, that's yeah. why we're seeing what we're seeing from, from precious metals. And I'm going to put it to you this time. Cryptocurrencies, what is happening there? <laughs> Final time. Third time's a charm, Max. I will... I will. I will answer that question. So also gold closed today, 1960, up about uh, about three quarters of a percent. So the big news, uh, the big news, if you are watching uh, financial news channels, uh, is the price of Bitcoin heading uh, near to 11,000 today, uh, obviously crossing 10,000 earlier this week. Uh, these are big headline marquee numbers, and they're getting a lot of press coverage. You know, for me, I think the real story here is Ethereum. Um, Ethereum uh, has tripled in price uh, since April. It came in, it was about a hundred bucks uh, in, I'm sorry, in March. Uh, March, April, end of March, beginning of April was about a hundred bucks. Uh, we're trading at about 315 on Ethereum right now as we film. Uh, but there are very uh, sort of broad-based measures uh, that are increasing, uh, that are measurable in the Ethereum market. So contract calls, which are a measure of network usage, you can think of these kind of as a test net, have doubled in the last 12 months, uh, which appear to be a harbinger of increased volume to come. And then, of course, the big meta theme here is the rise of DeFi, which is quadrupled uh, by TVL. That's the total value locked. That's the key measure that we use to, to talk about the, uh, the full market value of DeFi, uh, has, uh, has quadrupled to year to date, which is a pretty extraordinary uh, statistic. And of course, um, the main technological driver here uh, is Ethereum 2.0, which is scheduled to be released later this year, which has uh, some major technical changes underneath the hood, moving uh, most prominently from a proof of work mechanism, which is the general uh, method uh, of gaining consensus that's used by Bitcoin, to a proof of stake mechanism. Obviously, the technical scope of what's happening there is beyond the this conversation, uh, but it is a significant change in the way that the protocol will operate. 
Okay. Well, it sounds like a lot of the things that you're talking about, specifically with Ethereum 2.0, are much longer term than you know than Bitcoin ripping this month. So I would right. just like to know how you, as somebody who really does take a longer term view, more focused on the underlying technology and the use cases, those sorts of things, how do you think about the market when you have a month like this or really a week like this um, where things are moving? And I'm sure you, know, you get questions from family members and things like that about, should I be buying Bitcoin and all sorts of things? So what do you think as somebody who really doesn't look at at Bitcoin as a trader um, when you have a move like this? You know, I, I see this. I, I tend not to, to pay too much attention, frankly, to the weekly and monthly gyrations in price. Obviously, I notice it. I'm a financial markets reporter. It's impossible to ignore. Um, but that's really not what I'm focusing on. I'm thinking about where are we going to be uh, in three to five years? Where are we going to be in a decade? What are the technologies uh, that are going to have a major impact uh, on the way that we conduct finance and, and frankly, in the way that we lead our lives? And Ethereum, uh, as well as Bitcoin, uh, and by, by the way, Bitcoin is, is by no means obsoleted uh, by the rise in Ethereum and the new changes that are coming in 2.0. It just seems to be that there's more incremental interest right now uh, in terms of new people who are joining a, a particular uh, development community or who are following it. So, so all of these, uh, it's going to be, it's, it's not going to be a single winner here in my view. Um, and, uh, you know, the short answer is I just try not to pay attention to it. I try not to get hooked into that. Now I know that's difficult to do, uh, if you've recently bought, uh, Ethereum or Bitcoin because you're, you know, depending on this month, you're euphoric and, and maybe a few months ago you were, uh, you were, you were clinically depressed. Um, but for me, that's not what this space is about. You know, there's an interesting story. There's a great interview today in, in Coindesk, uh, an interview with a gentleman named, uh, Heath Tarbert, uh, who some of our, uh, viewers who follow traditional finance may know is the current CFTC chairman. Uh, and, and Heath Tarbert is a really interesting guy. Uh, he's like a PhD lawyer from Oxford. He's obviously a very brilliant, very thoughtful guy. And he's younger than I am, which is intensely depressing. Uh, and he's incredibly interested in this space. And he gives a detailed uh, in interview to Coindesk today. And just one quote that's a great takeaway for me is he says, quote, when you think about the idea that at some point a large part of our financial system could very well exist in blockchain format, that's revolutionary. So you have the chairman of the CFTC uh, talking in a way that, you know, three years ago, you would probably only attribute to crypto evangelists, you know, your nephew who had come home from college and not stop talking about Bitcoin. This is the CFTC chairman. Now, CFTC doesn't regulate, obviously, all areas uh, that are uh, that are that are managed uh, in in the cryptocurrency complex, but they they manage and uh, and regulate a significant portion of it. And and most prominently in October, uh, Tarbert declared that Bitcoin was in fact security, but Ethereum was a commodity. And that's a significant statement because it gives the CFTC regulatory authority over. Ethereum and some of the Ethereum derivatives products uh, that are associated with it. Interesting. Well, I would just say, you know, if you apart from a few months, maybe back when we hit thirteen thousand, and then the that big brush up in twenty seventeen, uh, I can't think of any other times that you wouldn't be up. Like I just looked at the year to date chart of Bitcoin, you're up if you had just held all the way through the madness that we saw. Ethereum, if you held, uh, you're up. You know, maybe not as much as you would be if you were trading around it. But uh, taking that sort of 
set it and forget it view can can be just as beneficial as as trying to uh, pick tops and bottoms in the crazy world of crypto. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, in 2017, when Bitcoin crossed briefly, uh, depending upon which exchange you looked at the 20,000 mark, I was actually running markets coverage at Coindesk. And I was completely immersed in that at the time. Uh, and, and you're right. And by the way, Max, that's the least cynical I've ever heard you on the co- concept of cryptocurrency. Well, I was playing a I was playing a role the last time we talked. You know, I was I was just trying to be the foil, um, and you know, myself. I have my own. Uh, I've bought. I've I've owned it. I've owned different cryptocurrencies over the years. I have sold them. I've thought. Uh, you know, my view is that if there is going to be a total redux in the financial system, that there is going to be some serious pain, and it's going to be risk off all the way around, and you will have an opportunity to buy. Because when the if if we're getting out of the current financial system with the bank, like there's there's going to be a major risk off event, and based on what we've seen from from cryptocurrencies, you'll you'll have a chance. So I'm not I'm I'm not one of those guys who's like this is the last chance to buy above ten thousand or below ten thousand. Like you see those tweets all the time. You know I right. think that there are good times to buy, and and you know I don't I don't uh, think that. Did you you interviewed uh who was it the, those two guys who uh, the high frequency traders like there's plenty of, of good ways to um to trade around crypto assets it's just it's not my world yeah and generally when someone's telling you it's the last time to buy they're trying to sell you something yeah well that's that's one of the things that I have a problem with the space it's like if I've never heard of a, a good company that needs to be pumped like so much like Jeff Bezos is not out there pumping Amazon like he just goes about his business he he rolls things in grows his revenues keeps reinvesting keeps taking advantage of the tax code does all of that stuff he doesn't need to go out and partially that's because it isn't as revolutionary like i am sympathetic to the idea that uh, there's a lot of education that needs to happen in the space but uh, yeah, as somebody who follows all different types of traditional assets, it it does just kind of rub me a little. Uh, it just makes me a little cringy. But eh, I'm, trying, I'm trying to think of the least cynical reply to that, Max, and I think you hit on it. Actually, there's a lot of education that needs to take place in this space. Look, let's let's be blunt. There are a lot of scams as well, right? There, are, when you have asset classes that are moving uh, up into the right this quickly, uh, you are going to attract some significant unsavory elements into the space, right? And I think, look, it is fair to say that there is a lot of education that needs to take place in the space. And some of it uh, is uh, is just that people want to get their story out there. They feel that they need to get their story out there. Some of it is that it's just not been a regulatory regulated space for many years. So you don't have the tradition of compliance uh, lawyers tapping you on the shoulder saying, hey, you can't say that. So people aren't thinking uh, about self-censoring. There are a lot of reasons for it. Um, but look, it, it is it is it's the classic example of of what a gold rush looks like, right? You have real revolutionary things that are taking place uh, in this as a gold rush into new technology, I should say. You have revolutionary things taking place. If we went back to the dot-com era in the 1990s when uh, I was about your age and working on Wall Street, look, there were some some unsavory players there. There were, a, there were pump and dump schemes. There was stuff that was happening in the pink sheets that was repulsive, right? There were all kinds of things that were happening. And yet, we were building out the infrastructure that was going to allow us to do this, you know, to do this conversation over Skype uh, and deliver it end-to-end digital into your browser. So while there's real innovation that's happening in the space, there are definitely uh, some things that we will look back on and cringe.
Well, actually, that gives me the perfect opportunity to plug a little content that I'm proud of. So next week, uh, an interview with Quentin Matthews, who's a short seller, um, is going out. And we make a little bit of the comparison between um, crypto and activist short selling. The idea that uh, there are some people who ruin it for everybody, but obviously the whole reason that this exists is because there are obvious flaws in the system. Like crypto wouldn't exist if the banking system was perfect and nobody had any problems with it. And and activist short selling wouldn't exist if there wasn't uh, rampant fraud in, in, in the corporate world all over the globe. So very, it's very well said, Max. And I think that's the perfect last word. Thanks for joining us. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.